Well, good evening. Good evening. Welcome back to our series of studies through the book of Esther. Um, Tonight we'll be studying uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. But um, before we begin, I just want to do a brief review of of what we studied together last time in verses 1 through 8. I kind of divided that into two main sections. And in the first section, verses 1 through 4, we saw that uh, the king remembered the events of three years prior. When he had called for his queen and she refused to come. And now the young men who attend the king, and we don't know if those are the same young men who are referred to in uh, chapter 1 or not, but the young men who were attending the king at the time, what they did is they devised a plan. They devised a plan to please the king and to replace Queen Vashti. And then in verses 5 through 8, we saw that plan actually carried out. And what happened was that Esther, along with all of the the beautiful young virgins throughout the Persian Empire, they were taken in to the king's palace to be added to his harem. And then the one girl, the one girl who would please the king the most would become queen. Now, tonight, in verses 9 through 14, we're going to see the inner workings of what these young girls, um, what they were put through in preparation to see the king. And we're going to see how the Lord gives Esther favor, favor in order to position her right where she needs to be, right where he wants her to be in order to accomplish his plan for saving his people from annihilation. So if you'll join me in Esther chapter 2, let's read together verses 9 through 14. It says, And the young women, excuse me, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. He quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, When the young woman went into the king in this way, 
She was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Okay, let's look at verse 9. Now, the author begins in this verse to develop Esther as a, as a character in the story along with her surroundings and her experiences in the palace. The verse begins with this phrase, she pleased him and won his favor. She pleased him and won his favor. Just as Joseph won favor with Potiphar and his household, with the warden in the jail, and with Pharaoh himself, we see Esther first finding favor with Haggai, the king's eunuch. God's sovereignty is so great that we see him working even in the heart and in the mind of the keeper of the king's harem. Haggai's job, it was a tough job. His job was to provide pleasure for the king, doing this through the keeping of his harem. His responsibility, Haggai's responsibility, was to teach, to take each of these young girls through a year-long beauty treatment and training program. This would include a prescribed diet, uh, application of particular and specific uh, cosmetics, perfumes, oils, that type of thing. And most likely, although this is not stated in the text, most likely a course in court etiquette. They needed to know how to behave, how to speak, how to present themselves when coming before the king. Keep in mind that they were all being prepared, trained for one thing, to fulfill one purpose, and that was to please the king. Now keep in mind that Haggai Haggai was a Gentile. He didn't know God. He didn't know the true God of Israel. He was not in covenant relationship with God. But nevertheless, he plays a key role in the plan that God was working out to save his people from annihilation. And through God's sovereignty, through God's providence, Haggai gave Esther special treatment. He gave her the best cosmetics, the best food, and the best position within the harem. I think what we need to keep in mind is that God works similarly today in places and times and in his people's lives, oftentimes in the same way behind the scenes. 
We don't know he's there. We don't always know he's there. We don't always know that he's active in our lives unless we have spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. That, that is so important. That is, is, is vital in our relationship with the Lord, to have spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. Because the fact is, is that he is in all of the details of all of the circumstances, all of the circumstances of our lives, the ones that we enjoy and the ones that we don't. Now, this verse shows Esther both in a passive and in an active role. And it's the wording of the phrase that clues us into this. The words pleased him. In the original language, it's, a, it's what you call a passive clause. It literally means to be pleasing, meaning that Esther's countenance, her personality, and her character pleased Haggai. It, it, they had a positive effect on him. Now, it's true that this was all manifest through Esther's actions, but the point here is that her behavior, it was not artificial in any way. See, uh, Esther was simply being the Esther that God had made her to be. And this pleased Haggai. Now, it is possible that Haggai was overwhelmed or smitten with Esther's physical beauty, right? Remember, she is a beautiful, beautiful girl. So that's a possibility, and then as a result, he took special notice of her and gave her special favors. But if we're, gonna, if we're going to consider that, we must keep in mind that all of these young girls, all the young virgins who were collected were physically beautiful. They were all beautiful. That was a prerequisite to being brought into the king's palace. So there were literally, in in this group of girls, there was literally no unattractive girls in this group. See, I'm convinced that it was God sovereignly working through Esther's life, throughout her life, and in this immediate circumstance that gave Esther favor in Haggai's eyes. This will, it will serve to advance Esther to the perfect position, to the position that God desires for her in order to accomplish his ultimate goal in this story. And then look at the words, won his favor. Again, in the original language, this is an active clause, not a passive, but an active clause, which means that Esther was actively, purposefully behaving to gain his favor. The word won, it literally means to lift, to carry, or 
to take all words of action. Now, we're not given any specifics as far as what Esther did, what actions she took to win Haggai's favor. But what we can deduce or, or draw as a logical conclusion from this statement, what I really think that we are meant to see here is this. The Lord was working in the circumstances to give Esther favor. And, and I want to pause there and really emphasize this and. This is a a, a critical principle, a critical word here. The Lord was working in the circumstance to give Esther favor, and Esther was cooperating with the Lord in what he was doing. You see, it's not an either or. It's not, well, was the Lord working or was it, was it just Esther gained favor? It's not an either or, it's both. And you see, I emphasize this because there's a lesson in this for us all. When the Lord is working in the circumstances in our lives, we need to submit to his authority. We need to accept and embrace what he's doing in our lives. And, and again, I want to emphasize the and, and cooperate with him in it. You see, many times, and I'm talking about believers, true believers here, many times we work against the circumstances of our lives, especially when we don't like them, when we don't find them uh, favorable or pleasant. And other times, when we do recognize the Lord in our circumstances, many times in those uh, circumstances, we will embrace an attitude of merely enduring those circumstances until they're over. You know, we will, we will um, adopt a kind of like a grin and bear it type of response. And the truth of the matter is that the, the, the Lord doesn't want us to do either of those. The Lord wants us to, well, he wants us to follow Esther's example. He wants us to recognize his hand in all of our circumstances, even the ones we don't like and fully cooperate with him in those circumstances. It's not always easy. It's not meant to be easy. It's usually not meant to be easy. But by doing so, we will, like Esther, find favor in his eyes. Praise God. Now, there was clearly a, a pecking order when it came to Haggai's interaction with these young girls, with the king's young virgins. Now, he was, Haggai was responsible for their care and protection. Absolutely. And undoubtedly, if any harm came to any one of them, or if any one of them was not adequately prepared when it came to her time with the king, 
Haggai would be held responsible. He's the one that would be held responsible. His head would roll, so to speak. But the point here is that within that responsibility, Haggai clearly took better care of some girls than others. Right? Each of the girls had to be, must be, provided with their cosmetics and food. They must be taken care of. But we're told that Haggai made sure that Esther received hers first and that she received them quickly. You see, for Esther, there was no waiting. She was at the front of the line because she had found favor in his eyes. Each girl was most likely provided with young women to assist her. You know, kind of like um, ladies' maids, right? Um, they, they each might have even been provided seven. We just don't know. I mean, it, the, the text says that, that Haggai provided uh, Esther with seven young women to assist her. So we don't know if that was an extra blessing or if they all received seven. But what's implied here is that Haggai took special care. He took direct supervision over which young women were assigned to Esther. He probably even handpicked each one of them for Esther himself, giving her the best of the best. And there were apparently um, designated places within the harem for each of the girls, each of the girls to stay. And again, apparently certain of these places were in some way better than others. Maybe things like a closer proximity to food when meals were served, uh, maybe being first in line for, for new and, and fresh cosmetics, maybe better uh, sleeping accommodations, those types of things. But whatever the differences were, whatever they were, Haggai made sure that Esther received the best. And all of this was the outcome of Esther pleasing Haggai and winning his favor. Let's move on to verses 10 and 11. It says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. This passage discloses two very important elements of the story. Esther's secret identity and Esther and Mordecai's relationship. Now, Mordecai and Esther had what would have to be viewed, what I would call an excellent and healthy father-daughter relationship. Mordecai loved her, loved Esther, as if she was his own daughter, his own flesh and blood. 
he instructed her, or as our text indicates, he commanded her to keep her nationality as a Jew and her relationship to Mordecai, to keep those secret. Understand that this command, this was not Mordecai in any way um, lording his authority over Esther. What it was, was a strong yet loving instruction given with the intention to protect. Now the specifics as to why Mordecai wanted Esther's nationality and family connection hidden, why? That's not disclosed to us. We're not told why he instructed her this way or why he wanted it. Perhaps, and you know, I've read this in several of the commentaries I, um, I refer to, perhaps he had in mind to protect her from any possible anti-Semitism that might exist in the palace. They were Jews in the Persian Empire. Maybe he was concerned that You know, there were people out there that just didn't like the Jews, so she might be in some type of danger. Um, We just don't know. I'm convinced that regardless of what his reason was, why why this was important to Mordecai, why he instructed her this way, I'm convinced that the Lord was at work here in directing Mordecai to guide Esther in this way. You see... The Lord had a special work for Mordecai and Esther to accomplish in the Persian Empire at this particular time in history. And what he was doing, what the Lord is doing here, is he's carefully and meticulously orchestrating every detail of the circumstance throughout the story. He is in control. You see, none of the events throughout this story are random in any way. None of the events that we're looking at and studying are without purpose, God's purpose, including this command that Mordecai had given to Esther. You see, the secrecy of Esther being a Jew and her family connection to Mordecai, it was critical at this point, critical in order for the Lord's plan to come to full fruition. So, like I said, I am convinced that it was the Lord at work in this. So, as a result of all of this, in God's sovereignty, Mordecai gave the command and Esther obeyed. Esther responded to Mordecai in obedience and submission in this. There was no arguing. There was no questioning why. There was no going her own way once she was out of Mordecai's household. Keep in mind, she is now in the palace under the charge of Haggai. But also notice that she still respected and honored Mordecai 
by continuing to listen to his counsel and obey his command. Uh, As a parent, I I can testify to the blessing it is to have grown children who still seek, who still value, and still listen to my counsel. It is an incredible blessing, one that I know Mordecai enjoyed. Says that he also checked on her well-being as best he could on a daily basis. Now, Mordecai was not permitted direct contact with Esther. So what he would do is he would inquire about her at the court gate. We're not told this specifically, but presumably this was the closest that he could get to her. He wasn't permitted, you know, to go in to where, where the girls were kept and interact with her one-on-one. So this was most likely the closest he could get. But notice that he does this every single day. Mordecai was not content with inquiring of her well-being occasionally. He didn't go, you know, once a week, a couple times a month, maybe once a month to check up on her. He wasn't content with that. No, he went every single day to see how she was doing. The fact that he inquired of her on a daily basis like this clearly implies that he was thinking about her on an ongoing basis. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he was thinking about her all the time. He was absolutely thinking about her every day, right? He went to check up on her every day. But I would think, I would say that he was probably thinking of her most of the time. These are simply the actions of a loving, concerned father. And again, I'll speak for myself. I can absolutely see myself doing exactly the same thing if one of my daughters was in a situation where I couldn't gain um, a direct access to her. If I couldn't speak to her face to face, I could absolutely see myself doing this. Okay, now we're going to move on to verses um, 12 through 14. And I just want to say up front that these, these verses, this, this passage or sub-passage here, um, they are parenthetical to Esther's story of rising to be queen. These verses, they give us the details of the selection process into which each of these young girls was forced. Okay, they weren't there by choice. And, and we just need to understand this, this process that we're looking at here. This is a degrading process, what these girls are going through. It's filled with extravagance and it's filled with sexual overtones. Now, there's no commentary in this passage, either praising or criticizing the process at all. We're simply given the description 
of what was going on. We're given the description of how this, this pagan, this worldly, this ungodly political system functioned. So let's look at verse 12 to begin with. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. So each girl went through a rigorous, full-time beautification process. This was not something that they did in a, uh, a portion of their day. This wasn't you know, a two or three hour a day thing that they did. This was full-time. This was their life for this year. And this was not... Um, not what we know today as a beauty spa. I hope I'm using the right terminology here. But, um, uh, you know, these, these like day spas that offer a range of services that are, are, are meant to help the patrons to relax and to feel better about their their physical appearance. Um, these things, you pay a tremendous amount of money to go to, to, to get this. This is not what these girls were going through. Okay, this was, this was a process that was designed to rigorously accentuate each girl's physical beauty as much as physically possible. That was the goal, the one and only goal. Now, I'm just going to give a brief description of, of, of this. Uh, I, I read a lot of speculation about, about what went on, but it's all just that. It's just speculation. So I'm just going to give a real brief description of what I, I, I believe was going on during this time. Um, uh, uh, the, the first thing that's mentioned here is uh, six months with oil of myrrh. Now, this was an extended time of massaging with oil, you know, getting, having massages with oil for the purpose of exfoliating um, surface layers of dead skin, dry, sunburned skin, and to soften the skin, and to remove all blemishes and impurities from the skin that were possible to remove. Okay? Now, I guess that doesn't really sound all that bad, right? I mean, we pay money to go and get massages. But again, this is not what we are accustomed to when we pay for these types of services. These massages were most likely done several times a day or more, one after another, after another, after another, day after day after day. And they were done <clears throat> with no regard whatsoever to the girl's discomfort 
or even pain as a result. I mean, it's, it's quite possible, quite probable, that after a certain period of time, probably a relatively short period of time, of just receiving massage after massage after massage, it probably gets uncomfortable. It could even get painful. None of that was regarded. There was a goal in mind, a purpose, and that's what they were focused on. Okay, then we're told six months with spices and ointments. This was, again, an extended time of soaking or bathing in perfumed ointments and oils for the purpose of deeply penetrating the skin to where it would just soak deeply into into the skin. So even when the oils weren't actually on the skin, the, the aroma was still there all the time. Okay. And again, uh, you know, maybe this doesn't sound so bad or so uncomfortable, but just try to imagine constantly being soaked or bathed in these things. Like I said, you know, we, 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 we go to these places now, we pay good money to have this done, but it's all under our control. It's all for a, a temporary, relatively short period of time. Just imagine constantly doing this or having this done to you for six solid months. Um, okay, and I just want to point out, we're probably all aware of this, but when, when uh, the passage refers to spices, these were not... Um, uh, condiments associated with cooking and food preparation. These were oils and resins that were es- extracted from certain trees and plants that were used for making perfume. Um, what we refer today as essential oils. And again, you know, if you know anything at all about essential oils, they always come with a warning. Be really, really careful if you're going to apply this essential oil directly undiluted to your skin because it can cause discomfort and even pain. I don't think that these girls were, um, or I don't think that was considered in, in soaking these, these young girls in these oils and stuff. So again, this was all done with no regard to their discomfort or even possibly pain as a result of any of this. Okay, and that's my brief description. But the purpose of all of this preparation, keep in mind, was to make sure that all of the king's senses were pleased by these young girls. These girls, they were required to be physically beautiful to the king. That means From the king's perspective, they were to be beautiful in his eyes. Whatever he wanted, they needed to be. In all respects, looks, touch, and scent. And, I mean, 
based on, on the passage here, this was apparently so important, so important to the king that there were actually legal regulations for women to go through this process before they were permitted to approach the king. This type of of practice is characteristic of the leaders of societies who are far, far from the Lord. Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 3, he describes the Lord's perspective on beautification. And that is very, very different from that of King Ahasuerus. Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is very different from what King Ahasuerus was demanding from these young girls. Okay. Verses 13 and 14. This will be our final section tonight. Verses 13 and 14, it says, When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaj Gaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So after this year-long, rigorous, full-time beautification process was complete, each girl, in turn, was to go in to the king. And I want to just briefly explain what this phrase, go into the king, means. And I'm, I'm, I'm taking the time to do this because, again, in many of the, the commentaries that I've read about this, uh, some of the commentators uh, explain this at least as a viable possibility that what this actually meant is that the girls would, would go in to see the king and it's like they were interviewed by the queen, by the king. They, 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 they had a one-on-one talk and that's how he decided whether or not to, you know, make her queen or, or send her um, into, the, into the harem. But um, that's just not the case. See, the original language verb that we've translated to go into, it had a, a very strong and specific double entendre. It was a, 
a, a commonly used idiom for sexual relations. That's what was going on. That's what going into the king meant. That's what was happening when these girls spent the night with the king. I just want to make that clear. So these girls who were taken into the palace and placed under Haggai's supervision, they had, for this entire year, they had no choice whatsoever in their day-to-day lives. No choice in the day-to-day decisions of their lives. Their diet, their exercise, their beautification was all prescribed to them. I don't think that any of them were ever allowed to sleep in. You know, There was a prescribed time to get up. There was a prescribed time to, to go to bed at night. And there were prescribed times for everything that happened in between. They did what they were told, when they were told, and how they were told. And when each girl's number came up, she was moved from the harem to the king's private quarters. And it appears that at that time, she was given some say in how she would present herself to the king. She could take whatever she wanted from the harem with her into uh, the king's chamber. So part of their year-long beautification process certainly included coaching as to what the king liked and what he didn't like when it came to his women. They were coached. The text states that she was given, as she was, was when her number came up and, and she was to go into the king, she was given whatever she desired or whatever she asked for to take with her. Now, presumably, each girl would take with her what she had learned would please the king the most. It's logical. This probably included things like her clothing, what she wore, her jewelry, and perhaps even, you know, like a favorite meal of the king's, those types of things. So once everything was in order, she would go in to the king. She spent the night with him, and then she was taken away. After her one night with the king, she was not returned from where she came. She wasn't returned to the harem under the charge of Haggai. She was taken to what's what's stated as a second harem, now as an official concubine of the king's. Now she belonged to the king. This second harem we're told, was under the, um, the charge of a different eunuch. His name is Shashgaz. Um, not told anything else about him. I don't think that's significant. But this second harem, this was a lifelong appointment for each girl. A lifelong appointment um, in which 
she lived out her days in strict custody of this eunuch of the kings. And, I mean, each of these girls, they've got one purpose in life now. One purpose. And that's to please the king. That's their their sole purpose. Yet, each one never saw the king again unless he remembered her by name and summoned her for another night with him. Just think about that for a moment pragmatically. How many girls are we talking about? I mean, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands? You know, I mean, just like I said, just in the numbers, how is the king going to remember a girl's name? It's just, it's just a horrible, horrible situation. Now, these women in this second harem, his concubines, they were well taken care of in that they were pampered with the luxuries of the palace. They were, in, they were never in any type of want of food, clothing, you know, anything, anything like that. But know this, at best, at best, this was a lonely, miserable existence for these girls for the rest of their lives. And this was all done for the sole purpose of feeding the king's sensual appetite. That's it. So, in closing, I, I, I think that one of the key principles that we're meant to learn and embrace from this study is the eternal importance of knowing, of remembering that the Lord is involved in every one of our life circumstances. And keep in mind, he's not involved from afar. He's not involved in an observing way. He's active. He's in control. He is causing, influencing, guiding, directing all things in all of our life circumstances, even when it's not obvious to us, even when it doesn't seem to us as if he is, even when it seems to us that he's just completely absent and far from our circumstances. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? Even in those times, even in those circumstances, we need to remember. We need to remind ourselves and remind each other that he is. He is involved. He is there with us. And then, and again, this is, this is the huge and, and to trust him, to know it, to remember it, and to trust him in it. And then the other key principle we're meant to, to learn and embrace from this study is the principle of cooperating 
with the Lord, cooperating with him in his ongoing working out of our daily sanctification. And in each and every life circumstance that we encounter. Remember that his goal in our lives is to day by day, circumstance by circumstance, conform us into the image of his son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very, very much for this story, for this study, for this passage that we looked at tonight. Thank you for it, and I pray that you would work in each one of our lives. Please give us the grace. Grow us in our ability, Father, to see you in our life circumstances, to remember that you are there and that you're not just standing back and observing, but you're active, you're, you're causing, you're influencing all that happens to us, and that you've got a purpose in it. You've got a reason for it. It might be big, it might be small, but you have purpose, and all of your purposes are significant. And, Father, that you are through, our, uh, through the circumstances of our lives. You are sanctifying us. You are conforming us day by day circumstance by circumstance, into the image of your Son. Please help us to remember that, Father, and help us to cooperate with you, fully and completely cooperate with you along the way. Thank you, Father, and amen.